I have questions. And not just simple questions you can throw your cliches and positive vibes at. I have real questions about real issues and I need real answers. Real answers based in truth, not your preconceived ideals and well wishes. I have questions like, why are some people so threatened and offended by my beliefs and convictions? And why are my differing beliefs received as hatred or bigotry? Why do we live in a country where everyone claims to want peace and unity, but the only hand offered across the aisle is intended to shove our counterparts to place ourselves on some imaginary moral high ground? Is it just me? Why does it seem like we're all asking the same questions and we all want the answers, but we aren't able to reach an agreement? I need answers because as children, we were told to play nice because that's the right thing to do. And those same people who were taught to play nice have grown into these divided states of America. I have questions like, what are we missing? What is America missing? And when did we lose it? And how do we get it back? I need answers. Because. It's been said that an accurate accounting of the problem is 100% of the solution. And today in America, we recognize there's something about the American experience that is not working at its best. There is tension. There is social unrest. Do you know there is more brokenness in the home, brokenness in society? We're spending more billions of dollars than we've ever uh, spent before, whether in education or social networks and, 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 a, and our society. But it seems like we're fractured, broken, and divided more than ever. So the question is why? And occasionally somebody will give us an answer, a glib because. But often the because is a finger pointing. Well, because you vote this way, or because you believe this, or because you stand for that, or because you do this. And it seems like, it seems like America is divided and we can't quite put our finger on the problem at hand. We're looking for the right because. I don't know about you, but I grew up and when I would ask my parents uh, why I have to do something, they often said, because... I said so. You, you heard the same thing. Do you know that psychologists tell us this generation that we heard that so much growing up as kids that we tune everything out after the word because? That we heard because I said so. And if mom and dad said because, there was no argument or debate after that. So we kind of just shut down after the word because and we don't hear anything. Or somebody said, well, you're to do it because you're supposed to. You're just supposed to work. You're just supposed to do that. You're supposed to put up with it. This is just the way life is. And we often say, you know, it is what it is. You know, that's not a lot of hope. It is what it is. It really doesn't present a solution to us. Why? 
Why, why are people mad? They say, because I've been insulted. Why are people so defensive? They say, because I've been rejected. Why are people hypersensitive? Because I was ignored. Why, are there, why do we have a police department? Because people commit crimes. Why is there security? Because people plot evil. Why are there counselors? Because people are hurt. Why do we have laws? Because there's so much injustice. Right now in America, there are over 23,000 23, federal laws, pages of federal laws. That doesn't include civil, county, state. 23,000 pages of federal law, and we still admit they need to pass a law for somebody that's not following the 23,000 pages of laws we have. What's going on? We're looking for a because. Harvard says, Harvard School says, that the word because is perhaps the most important word in the entire English language. It is intended to clarify everything else and to give a purpose for everything. But we're like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. Why? Because, because, because of the wonderful things he does. We just really have not found the reason and the purpose of where life is today. I want to suggest to us that God has a solution. In the, in the book of 1 John in the New Testament, go to kind of the back of your New Testament. You can almost go to Revelation and back up a few books. There is this small writing called 1 John chapter number 4. Before I read from there, let me set the scene. John is writing 1 John, and he's arguing against a theory that was prevalent that day, which is prevalent today. It's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was of the idea, knowledge, Gnosticism, knowing, that, that spirit, spiritual things, your spiritual life, your spiritual person, your spiritual experience is in one category. And in another category is the rest of life. Government, society, family, home, personal experience. And Gnosticism said that spirit and everyday human experience never commingle, never mix. That's why in the biblical days they could have, they could have things like, like slavery and they could have things in, in those days uh, such as gladiators uh, uh, murdering people in the arena. They, they, could, they could do that and still say they honored the gods because Gnosticism said you can have a spiritual life but the rest of your life was separate. Do you know that we're still facing that today? And it's the product of what's called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment came along and said that our spiritual things, our personal things, uh, things of faith, spiritual matters, is in one category. And the rest of life, family, government, values, home, personal experience, is separate from that. And then came along some language said that we need to build a wall between church, spiritual, and the secular state. And the idea 
that we push the spiritual experience over here. And the spiritual experience never commingles, never touches, never influences this other part of our life. You have people you work with and they'll tell you, oh, they have a personal faith and they are, quote, spiritual but you see in their life turmoil and brokenness, and they say, well, it's personal, and it's on a personal level, but it never affects their values. It never affects them in other areas of, uh, areas of the life. That's a product of the Enlightenment, which is no more than uh, New Testament Gnosticism. That's where we're at, and this divide. And here's what's being said today in the 21st century. The The... The uh, uh, Constitution which protects the freedom of religion is being reinterpreted. You're going to hear this in public debate and politicians and, and news media. They're now saying the, that the Constitution protects the right of worship, not freedom of religion. It's a little change in the language. Where our society in America is moving to is this that you have the right to come to a house of worship like this, and in this room only you can practice your faith. But if you take your faith outside of this room and you bring it in the home and you practice it in the workplace and you live it out in other areas of life, that is discriminating, that is inappropriate, that is not according to standards, it's not according to norms, and that society can exact restrictions upon you because your freedom is in the house of worship and is not in your everyday life. That is Gnosticism gone to the extreme. That's where we're living today. And fighting against that, John begins to write this book. He's pushing against Gnosticism. And in chapter 4, verse number 19, he makes a statement that I believe begins to dive into the issues that we have at hand. He said in chapter 4, verse number 19, he said, we, we love because he first loved us. Hold on to that. There is the ultimate because. We love because he first loved us. In this same book, in chapter 3, verse number 1, he describes God's love as God has lavished on us his love. In other words, we can't give away what we don't have. And we've been told to keep that in this category, to keep it in the spiritual, and it is to never invade the personal. We separate the two. And here's what God is in the business of doing. God's in the business of invading his love, our life, and to affect us in all aspects and all categories of life. Many of us see our life kind of like a vending machine. Like a vending machine. You've ever walked up to a vending machine and not had enough quarters? I mean, you know what you want, but you just don't have enough quarters. Many of us, that's how we feel like life is. We feel like, well, this is the, this is the marriage and family I want. This is the person I want to be. This is the success I want to achieve, but I just don't have what it takes. I don't have enough quarters in order to make that in life. But the day you have enough quarters, you walk up 
and your flavor is the one they're out of. You ever been there? <laughs> you, you, you just you can't find what you want, and we're in that dilemma. You can't find what you want when you full, full very equipped or when you think you want it, you don't have what it takes to make it happen. And God steps on the scene. And God is saying society will always be broken because society cannot be and society will not express what it doesn't have. And that is love. I mean, the Encyclopedia Britannica, it will tell you about the surface of the moon it will tell you about the depth of the ocean. You can find information on almost any subject there is, but it has nothing to say on the subject of love. Science studies everything, but can't study love because they can't put it under a microscope and it can't measure it. Probably the most important quality, and if I was to do a survey and ask you what's the most important issue and quality in all of life, most of us would put at the top of that list love. But science has nothing to say about it. And with that, I'd like to deposit a couple of truths in our heart. The first one is that the love of Jesus enables us to experience the fullest and the best life. The love of Jesus allows, equips, enables you and I to experience the best and the fullest of life. The scripture says he loves we love because he first loved us. God is the initiator of it. God is the source. The problem is we're trying to find it in ourselves, and we have substituted likability for love. I mean, we go on social media, we friend, we like, and then we unfriend. That's how it goes, okay? That's just, that's just how it happens. And we realize there are several levels of love. We recognize that in society. For example, there is friendship love. There are people that you've known a long time. You have lunch with. You, you, you've known them. You, you see them and you just catch up and there's all kinds of memory. Perhaps somebody went to school with. You worked together, just been a neighbor, a longtime family, friend. There's that, there's that friendship love. But also there is fondness love. What is fondness love? Well, fondness love is primarily between parent and child. Parent and child. Uh, the parent is fond of and the child is fond of the, the parents. And the child never has as much fondness love for the parent as the parent does for the child. In fact, as life goes on, there is a separation. And the Bible says that's true. For this reason will a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and they too shall be one. But with the parent, that never diminishes. That never changes. It's that fondness kind of love. But there's another kind of love, and that's fun-loving love. You know, these people you fish with, you golf with, you laugh together with, you like to vacation together. Just You just enjoy being around them. That's very fine. Then there's functional love. Functional love is, is primarily in the area of the caregiver. I was speaking to somebody just, just earlier in the service. They're the caregiver of somebody. They're the primary. They care for them. And it's a functional, it's a practical love. They take care of them and they make sure that everything is provided for in their life. And that's some of us in this room. We're in a situation where it's, it's functional, it's practical. And, of course, we've got to mention intimacy. That's romantic love that society makes uh, so much emphasis on and stresses to almost the extreme. But in all five areas of these love, it's what's called transactional love. 
whether it's fondness, whether it's friendship, whether it's fun-loving. In all of these areas, it's transactional love. In order to receive, you've got to give. It's the whole idea. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. I do for you that you do for me. We get it. If I'm not friendly, you won't treat me friendly. If I'm not fun to be around with, people don't want to be around me. And we, we understand that's how to have, even in marriage, even in marriage, people respond in intimacy from the love that they get and how they're treated. Everything is transactional. In fact, counselors will use the phrase like this, the love bank. You've got to make deposits in order to make withdrawals. And that's true. In all of these areas, we have to make deposits. We have to do something in order to get something out of it. But the difficulty is, when it comes to God's love, it's not transactional. God's love is different from all the transactional understanding we have concerning love. For you see, God's love is that forever love. It's the unconditional love. Transactional love is you meet these conditions. On these conditions, I'll like you, I'll be with you, you'll be my friend. But if you ever don't meet the conditions, things between us change. But with God, it's not transactional. It's, it's, it's unconditional. It doesn't change. And some of us are on a journey with God. Some of us, we're warming up and we're, we're having some of the transactional concepts towards God. I mean, there was a time, some of us, we wouldn't even go to church. And you were skeptical and, and somewhat cynical about church. But you find yourself, you've kind of had some fondness. You've kind of, well, you know, I'll go. And then you've gone to church a little bit and it's kind of graduated to the fun-loving. Okay, you know what? You know what? Now, Pastor, he's not after all my money. You know what? There's a few things about it I can. I kind of like this. Don't like everything, but I'm kind of warming up to this. And we're moving into the fun-loving part. And then sometimes it gets functional. Why? God, will you meet this need? God, would you be my caregiver? God, I have a real big issue. And you're starting to actually ask God. You're actually praying to God but you're still seeing God as transactional. You have to do. You have to do for God in order to get from God. And that is not the picture of the love that God has here. The picture that is here is God. He, we love because He first loved us. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. God doesn't love us because we're good people. We pay our taxes and we're in good shape and we do everything right. God loves us when we're at our worst. God loves us when we're enemies. In fact, Scripture says this, and while we were sinners, when we were hostile to God, when our life, our philosophy, and our, everything about us was in, in opposition to God, He still loved us. He loved us first, and that's why we're able to love. That's the, the non-transactional. That's the forever love. That's the unconditional love. For you see, when it comes to God's love, God always gives more than He asks from us. And some of us don't see that about God. 
we really can't conceive that God is the primary giver. And God wants to give in our life. We always see that we have to earn. We have to merit. But we have to come to a place that we can see God loves us no matter what. And some of us, we're still trying to buy into that. We can, we can theorize that. But somehow our emotions don't align to that. We still feel like we've got to earn God. And we're struggling with that. Karl Barth. Perhaps the most premier theologian of the 20th century. When he made his first visit to the United States, Karl Barth was asked the question, what is the greatest theological idea that you have ever discovered? And Karl Barth said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Wow. <laughs> Here was a man that could... That could uh, move into a theological discussion on the greatest thoughts and depths of theology. But he said the greatest and the most profound truth of all is God's love for us. For you see, love for Jesus enables us to live the fullest and best life. When we say, God, your love is not in a category, it's not quarantine, it's not behind a wall that you separate. God, I open my life and I receive your love into my heart. I fully embrace that. I know I don't earn it. I know I don't deserve it. I receive it because your nature is to give and your nature is to love. And God says, that changes our life. Second, all I want to share with you, the fear of God will get your attention, but the love for Jesus will capture your heart. And some of us, some of us were motivated by the fear of God. I mean, some of you, you're in church today, well, I better clean up my act or God's going to get me. I mean, I, I just sense that God's going to hammer down on me. You're motivated by the fear of God. The fear of God, it'll get your attention but love for Jesus will captivate your heart. The Bible does say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the ending of wisdom. Sometimes, sometimes we're moved because we feel convicted. Sometimes we feel we're moved towards God because we feel unworthy. We, we, we feel guilt and condemnation. It's the beginning. The, 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 the fear of God will get your attention. But I must say, if you, don't, if you don't let the love of God capture your heart, you won't finish the race. We need to be moved by God's love. God doesn't want you to serve him out of fear. God wants you to serve him out of love. 1 John 4 and Verse number 18, look at this. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who's fe who fears is not made perfect in love. Did you ever walk around just doing something because, or else? Did you ever, did you ever walk around with fear of reprimand? I've got to do it or else. Are you living in a relationship in the home in which you feel like you're walking on eggshells? Than your, than your experience in perfect love. The Bible says perfect love does not cast and does not infer punishment. It does not intimidate. And I've discovered imperfect love always brings labels in our life. What do you mean? Yes, labels. Some of us, we label ourselves as being calloused, 
You say, I'm not gullible. I've been hurt. I'm not, I'm not a gullible, trusting person. Somebody's got to earn it with me. And somewhere in the past, you had imperfect love. You had a friend that betrayed you, a business partner, a co-worker. Somebody stabbed you in the back. Somebody didn't follow through on the deal. And you now have that label in your life. The divorcee, you describe yourself. Tell me something about yourself. Oh, I'm divorced. You wear that label. Why? Because somewhere in the past, somebody told you, I love you no matter what. You experienced imperfect love. Somebody said, I'll, I'll stay with you no matter until death do we part. But there was a moment, for whatever reason, they said, I'm checking out of this. I'm done. I don't love you anymore. I can't do it for you anymore. And they checked out and walked away. And you wear that label because of imperfect love. It's the, it's the approval addict. It's the approval addict that becomes the workaholic today. And you pride yourself on how hard you work and how much you provide and how much you sacrifice and you put in 60 hours and do more and you just drive yourself. It's not enough to just have an A. You have to have the A+. plus. You just have to have more and better than you've ever had before because you were raised in a family where making a C or a B was not good enough. You could do better than that. And you were only praised when you did better and you out you out achieved and outperformed everyone else. So you just kept going and became the approval addict. And you were only celebrated in the home when you were at your best. And if you were just average, average didn't seem like enough. And then we grow up and become approval addicts. And we've always, always seeking the approval of the affirmation of others. And we carry that label. And that wound. Why? Because we experience imperfect love. That's transactional love. If you do and you show and you become and you behave and you act this way, I'll love you. If, if there is an if in it, it's transactional love. But God says even if, even if you don't, I will still love you. And he says that this perfect love, what does it do to imperfect love? It drives it out. Interesting word. Drives it out. I want you to capture the, the picture of that. How do you get rid of the labels? How do you get rid of the labels? You let God's perfect love come in. There's something about your heart. God has to heal. His love has to heal that. In fact, the word drives out is the same word used in the gospel when it says and Jesus drove out a demon from the man does that give you an idea of the darkness and the the torment that God wants to free us from the same word as being freed from a demon is the idea of God's perfect unconditional love it drives out all other imperfect love and the scars of that in, your, in, your, in someone's life. On the screen behind you, there's a picture of my mom and dad. Oh, I love my mom and dad. My mom and dad are in heaven now. And I'll have to tell you, honestly, I was a mama's boy. I was close to my mom. And that's all right, okay, guys? I was a mama's boy. I love my mom and dad, but 
I was always a mama's boy. And, and there was an incident that happened, and I, I think I was about 12. I, I know I wasn't 13, and I might have been 11. Somewhere about then, you know, when you kind of feel like you're smarter than your parents. You ever get, to, you remember that? You remember when, you, when they're telling you and lecturing you and you're rolling your eyes and you say, they just don't get it. They just don't know how capable I, I am and how, ta-. you know, they, you just kind of, uh, kind of too big for your britches, you know, my mama used to say. Well, I, I was at one of those places and I got to a place where my stupidity overtook my self-preservation. You know what I'm talking about? Where, where my stupidity overrode my self-preservation because one day my mom was telling me what I needed to do and she was telling me what I needed to attend to and I wasn't hearing her and I just I was just kind of tired and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm 12 years old. Man, I can do this. And I, I won't tell you when I did. My stupidity overtook my self-preservation. I just told my mom, you're a witch. Yeah. And when I did... My mom said, you'll deal with your dad when he gets home. Oh, my goodness. In our home, that was not good. If you were ever told you got to deal with your dad when he gets home from that time till dad gets home, it's like being on death row, okay? I, it was going to be bad news. And I'm telling you, I had, I had visions of being a human pinata. Uh, my dad stringing me up and beating the life out of me for what I said. And I, man, I'm telling you what. And I just decided, you know what, I, I have nothing to lose now. So I'm going to make my case. So all day long, I began to rehearse my story. I'm going to make my case between my dad. I'm going to just tell my dad how it really is. You don't, you're at work all day. You just don't know how capable I am and what I have to put up with. So... My dad came home, we had dinner, and it's one of those dinners where it was tense. No one talked. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> After dinner, I was sent to my room, and my dad came in. And I knew this was going to go bad, so I'm going to make my case with my dad. And my dad said, okay, tell me about it. So I, in about two minutes, I made my case with my dad. I used the word unfair several. It's unfair, and I can do, and I don't need rules, and I don't, and it's unfair. And I went through my whole story. I mean, I had nothing to lose because I, I figured in a moment, my dad, my dad's going to kill me. He's going to rip off my head and spit in the hole. I mean, it's going to be bad news. I, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go down bad in a moment. And then all of a sudden, I still recall this. My dad he started talking to me. I still hear my dad's voice right now as I'm telling you this story. He said, I want you to know about your mother. She changed your diapers. Now, young families, this is before Huggies and Pampers, okay? And I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be nice in this setting here but my dad began to give me a seminar on what it meant you take a dirty diaper and you go into the toilet and you wash it off and then you take it and clean it and wash it he began to give me a seminar on all my mom did then when he was done with that my dad began to tell me of all the things my mom went without so we could have stuff I never knew about stuff I never knew Stuff she didn't get for Christmas because she wanted the kids to have something for Christmas. When my dad was done, 
I felt like a dog. You ever feel like you were given the electric chair and you still lived? I mean, that's how I just, I'm telling you, I felt, I, I felt so stupid. I felt so, you blockhead. And my dad just walked out and let me just soak in that. And then here in a little bit, here in a little bit, my mom came in the room. And I didn't know if my mom was going to lay down the law, ground me until I was 35 years of age. I didn't know what she was going to do. But my mom sat down on the edge of the bed, and the first thing out of her mouth, she said, Hun, and if my mom ever sit down with you, and she said, Hun, you melted. And I just melted. And she began to tell me how much she loved me. I mean, she ought to hate me. But she began to tell me how much she loved me. In that moment, my mom and dad did not put the fear of being a kid in my mind. They put the love that a parent has for a child when a child doesn't deserve to be loved. Never forget that. And I'm going to tell you, I'd heard before, my mom and dad had told me many times, I love you, son, I love you, son, I love you. That day, I didn't get new information, but the information became new to me. I understood my mom and dad's love for me in a way I never understood before. Here's what I'm saying. John said, we love because he first loved us. God reached in in our lives when we were, the scripture says, when we were in sin, when we were the most unlovable, undeserving, deserving of punishment and reprimand. And instead of reprimand, God, according to John, he lavished his love on us. He gave us his love, profound, unconditional, forever love. I can drop the ball. I can fail. I can mess up. And God will keep loving us. And something that's so profound that goes against all the transactional love is you can't do anything to convince God to not love you. That goes against because you can do something in any area with an employer, friend, spouse. You can do something to get them to stop loving you. But when it comes to God, there's nothing you can do to get God to stop loving you. And that's profound. That's what is missing. And I want to invite you, if you've never experienced God's unconditional personal love in your life to do so today would you bow your heads and close your eyes all across this auditorium I know there are people that you're struggling understanding a relationship with God because in every area of your life it's always been transactional you've got to do in order to get and so many times you feel unworthy, you feel unfit. Sometimes we blow it, we mess up, 
And we think, God, you just can't deal with me. God, you can't, you can't, you can't receive me. I'm, I failed and I've messed up too much. I want you to know you can't, you'll never put yourself in a position where God can't and won't love you. And I'm going to invite you to know God's unconditional love today. It's not dependent upon how good you are, but when you open your heart to Him, you can receive, you can love because He first loved you. And if you need to receive God's unconditional love, we call it salvation. At Westover, we call it making new. It's when we invite Jesus into our heart, we love Him. We don't earn Him. We don't try to appease God, but realize God loves us. And with all of our weakness and mistakes, we can come to Him and say, God, I receive you. And if that is where you're at today and you want to receive God's unconditional love, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand right now and say, that's me. Yes. Yes, somebody. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, ma'am. Just hold it up. Just hold it up for a minute. Yes, all across the aisle from the balcony. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I don't need to know the story behind. I don't need to know what's happened. Perhaps you've been hurt by so many conditional love experiences that you can become jaded towards God. But God's not in that category. God loves you. God has something for you. For those that raised your hand, I'm going to invite you right now to pray a prayer with me. There's no magic formula in this prayer. It's a prayer of saying, Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, I receive you. I often say God's made it as clear as A, B, C. You acknowledge your need of God. That's A. B, you believe that Jesus is God's one and only Son. And C, you confess Jesus as your Lord and ask God to forgive you. It's as clear as that. And if you'll do that today, you can receive God's unconditional love. It seems like it ought to be harder than that, but God won't let you work for it because if you could work for it, the strong would have it and the weak would be without. You can't buy it because if you could buy it, the rich would have it and the poor would be without. God won't allow that. He says, I'm going to give it to you. If you'll ask, God will give it. So I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer of faith, something like this. Heavenly Father, I come to you recognizing there's all kinds of weakness and mistakes, failures in my life. My whole life has been transactional love. I have to, I have to do in order to get that's always made me feel unworthy and unaccepted to God. But because of Jesus, I come today. And Jesus, 
I believe you're God's son and I invite you come into my heart. I don't fully understand all of that, but I don't need to. I just, I'm going to ask you, as the Bible says, come into my heart. Forgive me. Forgive me of of the wrong. Forgive me of misunderstanding you. Forgive me, God, of my inhibitions and forgive me my pride. Forgive me my sin. And I ask you to take it away. And I receive Jesus as my Lord today. I'm going to determine to follow God. I'm going to determine to serve the Lord. Oh, I know I'm not perfect now. I wasn't perfect before. But the difference is, I know how to receive your love now. And I commit to serve you all the days of my life. And I ask this, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. I pray you go in the love of Jesus. God bless you. You're dismissed.